0: Good to see you on this Lord's Day. It is May 16th of 2021, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said. And how grateful we are to be together in this place, to sing as we have just sung that Jesus died, he rose again, and we are forgiven. No greater news than that, and I pray that you continue to walk in the reality and joy of that truth. I invite you to take your Bibles and meet me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, as Pastor Mike mentioned, we are continuing in our series "A Life Well-Lived, looking at each of the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. And we are midstream. About halfway through this message, we will be exactly halfway through the fruit of the Spirit. There are nine qualities that should mark us because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And Paul identifies them for us here in Galatians 5. An interesting psychological study was conducted a few years back examining the problem of road rage to see if there was a causal link behind the verbal outbursts, the rude gestures, even the physical violence taking place on our nation's roads. And the architects of the study could find no predictors along the typical lines of age or gender, ethnicity, class, or location. However, they did discover one surprising indicator of road rage, bumper stickers. And here's where the study got interesting. It turns out that road rage isn't triggered by bumper stickers endorsing a political candidate or philosophy, or word to tailgaters, or a sticker that sounds like a threat. Instead, the study showed that the actual message on a bumper sticker, the actual message on a bumper sticker was totally irrelevant. The only factor was the mere presence of a bumper sticker. Regardless of what it said. And the more bumper stickers, then the greater the likelihood of road rage. And all I'm saying is, is that the car, the driver of this car is in trouble. You can see he's from California. There's, there's a problem out there. Well, according to this study, the, the problem isn't that bumper stickers offer a means of self-expression, but they just may point to a person who is prone to quarrel and fight rather than to persuade and convince. Now, if you have a bumper sticker on your car, I'm not suggesting that you go out this morning and rip it off. But there is a time to stand and to fight for what you believe. And if bumper stickers become a means of self-expression for you in that regard, we get it. But the Apostle Paul repeatedly told Timothy to fight for the faith and to fight for the faith with courage. But immediately upon encouraging Timothy to fight for the faith, he then said this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, but the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kindness. It's the fifth quality mentioned by the Apostle Paul in this concatenation known as the fruit of the Spirit, this list of virtues that are inter- interdependent upon one another, they, they all go together. In other words, as we have said throughout this series, you can't just pick and choose which ones you want to be manifested in your life, but rather when you walk with the Holy Spirit, all of these virtues to some degree will be evident in your life and mine. And they are, as Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, Here it is, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. As Jesus lives his life through us, this is the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in our lives. Now, before we look specifically at the fifth virtue this morning, the virtue of kindness, I feel compelled... To address a comment, I sometimes hear about the fruit of the Spirit. I have heard Christians talk about the qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, even gentleness, as more feminine in essence than masculine in expression. And they are neither. The fruit of the Spirit are spiritual qualities indicative of the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, unfettered by a gender or stereotype or any other distinction. The fruit of the Spirit is neither feminine nor masculine. The fruit of the Spirit is the presence of Jesus. It's the portrait of who he is and how he lives his life in us and through us. I say that this morning because virtues like kindness to some people smack of softness. For them it describes someone who is spiny and toothless and in a culture that prefers pointing fingers and shouting louder, kindness is not only overlooked all around us, but sometimes held in contempt. In a world that rants and rages, kindness is seen as too soft and delicate. My aim this morning is to show the quality of kindness that is lifted up in the Bible as not a greeting card sentimentality, but a gospel-centered infusion that affects everything that we do. Kindness is more than your disposition. It's it's far greater than your mood. Barry Corey, president of Biola University just outside of Los Angeles, said the way of kindness is not just having the right theology. It's about being the right kind of people. So as we talk about this virtue this morning, we want to see kindness as a way of living. And what I want you to see most of all this morning is that kindness is a verb. It's something that we do. And in order to, for us to see it as, as something that we show, we demonstrate, we display, I want to invite you to find now the Old Testament book of Second Samuel. So from Galatians 5, we go backwards. From our perspective now, some 2,900 years. Second 2 Samuel chapter 9. And what does a story? That's 2,900 years old, have to do with us. Well, let's look at this story that we encounter here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the opening chapters of 2 Samuel as a book. Picture the nation of Israel flourishing now under the reign of David as king. And when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is at the height of his career. It has been 20 years since he slayed Goliath the giant. He has been king over a united Israel for about seven years. And during these years, David's reign is marked by, by security and prosperity and order. He has been leading his men into battle, and wherever he goes, he is victorious. So he is adding vast stretches of new territory. He is enlarging the borders of Israel. David is a superb statesman. In chapter 7, he installs competent and respected officials who administer justice and and are able to look out after the welfare of the people. David is coming off a major victory in chapter 8 against the Arameans, a victory which he recognized as coming from the hand of God. And so now we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we want to look at a touching story from David's life, that pictures for us this morning the astonishing kindness that is mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. As I read verses 1 through 13, I want you to look for three occurrences, three particular appearances of the word kindness. Hear God's word. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Elodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, I'm going to have to try to say that a few times today too. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to us and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land shall till the land for him and shall bring it produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that the Lord my God, the king commands a servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. And then we're told for the second time as the story closes, now he was lame and both his feet. And this is God's holy and inspired word to us. And all of God's people said, the ancient world had its own version of a game of thrones. In a brutal world, it was common for the new occupier of a throne to eliminate every member of the previous regime. It was not only expected, it was also scandalous not to do that. But David was a different kind of king. And this story opens with a very surprising question. Verse 1 again, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's the key word in the passage, isn't it? And we find it expressed three times in verse 1 and verse 3 and verse 7. Our English word translated kindness here comes from the great Hebrew word chesed. You'll find that word throughout the Old Testament. And it is sometimes translated kindness. In other places, it is most frequently translated steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never changes. It's the same word, chesed. And it shows here in these extraordinary acts of kindness that David pays to Mephibosheth. And that's what that's what chesed is. Again, it's, it's acts of extraordinary kindness shown to someone who is in need without any ability to reciprocate or to repay. That's kindness. Now, the word itself takes us back then to the unique friendship that existed between David and Jonathan. Jonathan was the, the son of King Saul, a prince in his own right, according to royal blood. And you know the story of how a deep kinship existed and was shared between Jonathan and David. And even after Jonathan learned that David and not he would become the next king of Israel, having been anointed by Samuel, Jonathan was okay with that. And these two men shared such an unbreakable bond that no jealous rivalry existed. Nothing would ever separate the care and the love that these two men had for one another. And out of friendship, they shared a covenant, a promise that they would care for one another's family. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, for instance, verses 14 and 15, listen to what Jonathan said to David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love. There's the word chesed, kindness. Show me the steadfast love, the kindness of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, same word, from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Later in the chapter, again in verse 42, knowing that David would inherit the throne, Jonathan says to him, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. So at the heart of this covenant shared between Jonathan and David was now a vow that if either one of them died, then the other would act like a father to his kids. It's a profound relationship. A few years have passed now since Jonathan was slaughtered in a battle against the Philistines. He dies the same day as his father Saul. And now David is sitting on the throne of Israel with strength and security. And what does a man do when he is at the height of his career, when he's at his pinnacle? Well, a man like David begins to think ...about his friendship with Jonathan from years ago. And being a man of his word, David wants to keep his promise. And that's what we encounter at the beginning of this chapter. I just love the opening verse. When David simply asks a question, the impression that I get is he's asking, of course, this question out loud... ...asking if there was anyone left from the house of Saul... And the officials surrounding David immediately begin to conduct a search to find any surviving member of Saul's family that might be left. And and they find a man who served Saul. He was one of Saul's major attendants who, who was then brought before David. This man's name is Ziba. They bring him before David. They ask him about whether or not there are any remaining members of Saul's household a moment that was rather fraught with complexity for Ziba. I mean, he could reveal the heir of Saul by name and risk having a team of assassins sent to eliminate him. Ziba could have said to David, You can torture me, but I will never tell you his name. Or maybe I've just read too many spy novels. But this is a risky moment for Ziba. So Ziba had a choice to make, to tell or not to tell. And Ziba gives up his name. And not just any name, the, the name of Jonathan's son, the grandson to Saul, and as you know, a difficult name to pronounce at that, Mephibosheth. The son of David's best friend was still alive. And if I'm reading the account clearly, um, J- David knows nothing of his existence. And what is more, Zibit informs David that Mephibosheth is disabled. It's mentioned two times in the story. What happened? Well, back in 2 Samuel chapter 4, when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, word spread and panic swept in through the palace of Saul. The servants of the palace ran for their lives in the process of evacuating the home. Five-year-old Mephibosheth was dropped by his nanny, breaking both of his ankles, leaving him permanently disabled. The only living heir of the house of Saul is now a crippled man living out in the middle of nowhere. Ziba surrenders the identity of his location, and he tells David that Mephibosheth was living in a remote remote corner of, of Israel. And as we could read into the story, reading between the lines, Life has not gone too well for for m sometimes i'll think I'll just call him M if that's okay like Mephibosheth was undoubtedly in much physical pain for most of his life. He couldn't work we ignored him. in fact, his name literally means he scatters shame. Imagine that being your name's meaning. And on top of that, he's living in a place called Lodabar, which means nothingness. So here's a man who scatters shame, who lives in the middle of nowhere, in a place where there's nothing to do and no way to make a living, and he is barely eking out an existence in utter poverty. And no sooner did Ziba reveal his location than a band of officials arrive in Lodabar, seeking his whereabouts, and they find him. They place Mephibosheth either on a donkey, perhaps, or maybe a cart. They travel the 50 miles to David's palace, and I am sure that the entire way terror is just shaking him. Put yourself in his place. You have just been summoned to appear before the new king, Of again, the practice of which is to eliminate all the errors of the previous regime. What might you be thinking? What might you be feeling? Mephibosheth is scared. Maybe he is expecting the swing of a sword that would sever his head. Perhaps the depressing tale of his already sad life would end in a bloody execution. Mephibosheth falls before David trembling. And I wonder if when David looked at him, he could immediately recognize Jonathan's face in his son. And the first thing David does is to call him by his name, Mephibosheth. There's great dignity in that. There's great respect. And then the second thing David did was to put him at ease by saying, fear not. There's a lot to fear in life. There's a lot to fear in life, especially if you're disabled. And David told him he has nothing at all to fear. But is what David said next, and what David does next, he could hardly believe. David told Mephibosheth that not only was his life going to be preserved, but that he was extravagantly bless him. He said, I am going to restore to you all of the land of Saul that was lost when your father and grandfather died. So David promises him a steady flow of income, not merely a temporary stay. And he said to him, I want you to come and I want you to live with me here in Jerusalem and you will join my family and you will eat at my table every day like one of my sons. And just as David promised, he was treating Jonathan's son as if he was his own. And Mephibosheth is overwhelmed. He says to David, I am nothing but a dead dog. Why are you showing to me such kindness? In Israelite culture, a dog was not a family pet. So this is not your lovable golden retriever kind of comment, okay? But rather this dog that he is referring to was was in their culture nothing but a foul, mangy thing. And then a dead dog on top of that was uncleanness to the extreme. He was not only crippled in his feet, Mephibosheth, he was also crippled in his spirit. You can just sense his negative self-esteem and image. He felt less than human. And David assures him a seat at his table, a place of highest honor and favor. Kindness has won the day. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a story that is 2,900 years old. And you've been sitting there patiently thinking, well, what does a story that occurred in 900 B.C. have to do with me sitting here in 2021? What's this story got to do with my life today? It's a good question. And since we're meat and potatoes people, we need to ask ourselves, what does this story mean for us? Well, as I mentioned before, this story is about being the right kind of person. Kindness has to do with the way that we live. It's not just, again, having right doctrine and right truth and right opinions and right convictions. It is about being the right kind of person. It is about being the kind of person who displays the character of Christ. And if the fruit of the Spirit is about anything, it is about those who claim to follow Jesus living like Jesus. That, by the way, is the greatest need in our world today. But I also believe this, that living out a lifestyle of kindness may be One of the great challenges for Christians living in this post COVID season. Why? Because ours is a coarse and angry culture. Have you noticed that people are talking past one another? That people are yelling at one another. It's not just rage. It seems as if rage is just everywhere. And the last time I checked, quarreling and judging and criticizing doesn't appear anywhere within the list of the fruit of the Spirit. But kindness does. And men and women who follow Jesus, who keep in step with spirit so that kindness is exhibited in their lives those are the kinds of people i believe in the coming months and years who are going to stand out and by the way this is not the world's version of practice random acts of kindness again this is about being the right kind of people of people who love jesus and follow jesus so so let's go there And in a very, very simple way, here's what I want to do. I want to make a case for kindness one step at a time. And let's begin with as simple an expression as we can. Why kindness? Because God is kind. You can't put it any more clearly and simply than that. God is immensely kind. Recall the words of David to Ziba. Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show him, and I love this expression, the kindness of God to him? God is kind. And David wants to show the kindness of God to him. Sorry for the in and out of this. Are you still with me? Catching every other word? Luke chapter 6. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus said, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Because God is kind. Because God is merciful. Because God is good. Because God is like this. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. The story of Mephibosheth is how he goes from this meaningless existence as nothing but a dead dog and living in fear to being in the king's household and now treated as as one of the family. And, And the story is such a powerful story because I hope you see it. I hope you've already caught it. This is the story of the gospel. This is a picture of what God has already done for us in Christ and it is a direct parallel of, of what happens to us when God brings us out of the kingdom of darkness and places us in the kingdom of his Son. We are all Mephibosheths. And we have all gone from being enemies of God to being children of God and not because of anything that we are or because of how charming and lovable we are. Again, like Mephibosheth, We're dead dogs scattering shame, living in a place of nothingness, and then God's kindness and grace appears. David could have simply ignored Mephibosheth, and you know what? Nobody would have known a bit of difference. He could have ignored him, and in some respects, We could even call that mercy, given the pattern of eliminating those within the previous dynasty. But God's kindness goes further, and David understands the kindness of God. That's why he asks then, is there someone to whom I can show God's kindness? Jesus Christ, in the same way, came to seek and to save those who are lost, those who are far away. We, again, like dead dogs, living in a place of nothingness and nowhere, he pulls us out of our rags, he take away our spiritual poverty and he extends everlasting mercy to us. God reaches out to the crippled and to the outcast and and even when we lay trembling at his feet, he says to us, don't be afraid. He lifts us up. He says, I'm going to give everything back to you that you have lost because of sin. I'm going to give you an inheritance and blessings and riches and the heavenly places but more than that, I am going to invite you to sit at my table forever because you are my son and my daughter. This is the gospel of Christ. Like Mephibosheth, we are invited to feast at the king's table every single day. And like Mephibosheth, we never deserve to belong there. So God's grace flows. And I want you to see in particular this morning that God's grace always flows downhill to the low places. God's grace never flows uphill to the pompous and the people who have everything together. God's grace flows down to where we need it. His kindness meets us in that very place. God is kind because he can't deny. It is his essential nature. I think help is on the way, so we're going to do a, we're, doing, we're going to do a quick exchange here. But some Everybody good? There we go. If It is okay, I'm going to start over. Right from the very beginning. 949. I hope you brought your sack lunch. We're going to be here a while. God is kind. He is kind. And he cannot deny himself. It is his essential nature. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, It is God's kindness. It is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. I don't know why we think that it's berating and yelling and arguing that brings somebody to Jesus. That, that doesn't. It's God's kindness that does. Ephesians chapter two, verse seven. Paul says so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Kindness is not just one of those side issues. This is at the very heart of what God has done for us. Titus chapter 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us in his kindness. He has given you and me a seat at his table. I, I don't know who, but I know this, this message is for someone who's sitting in this room right now. And for someone who is watching online, this this story is, is for you. You may look okay on the outside, but you know if anybody else doesn't that you're also riddled with damaged emotions. You've been abused. You've been sent away. You feel as if you are entirely useless. You have tried to eke out an existence on your own way, doing your own thing, and you have found that way to be hard and perilous. You have made a thousand mistakes, and now you feel like you're paying for every single one of them. And like David, for Mephibosheth, but in a greater way, far greater way, Jesus Christ came looking for you. Because God's kindness flows downhill. There is no one who is more kind and more compassionate, more loving than Jesus. And the word for us this morning is that he will never walk away from you. If you come to him bruised and battered and beaten and bloody, he will take you in and he will give you a seat at his table. You say, how can I I find that seat? Receive his invitation. Call out to him. Say, Jesus, I want you to be my rescuer. I want you to be my savior. And he'll do that. He'll give you a seat at his table. God is kind. Jesus is infinitely kind. Secondly, since God is extravagantly kind, can we get any more simple than this? We are to be kind to others. Just as David's kindness was rooted in the kindness of God, any kindness that we show to others is because of the kindness that we have already experienced in Christ. So this is now not only the, the experience of the gospel, God is kind and we've been saved by his kindness. Now we live the gospel out and we are kind because he is. In other words, we can't manufacture kindness. Kindness. You know, you may look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, but I know people who are outside of Christ who seem to be manifesting some of these qualities. Well, there is a kind of milk of human kindness. There is that desire, as Solomon says in one of the Proverbs, we we all desire kindness from one another but we're looking at something entirely different when we say having experienced the kindness of God, now we show that same kind of kindness to others, that's something that cannot be hyped up or manufactured. We love, not because we're supposed to, but we love because we know that we must show kindness to others because we have experienced the kindness of God. God is kind, we are to be kind. Kindness is a verb. It's something that we do. It's something that we show. And if God has shown you kindness, then be kind to others. Be kind to those who can't repay. Be kind to those who can't reciprocate. Be kind to those who don't deserve it. Listen, it is no badge of honor to be outraged by the insanity that we hear and see and feel all around us. Anybody can be outraged. And if being outraged at the world in which we live is a mark of godliness, then Satan is the most godly person of all. He lives on outrage. He fumes and fusses all the time. But to be a Christian is to have a heart of compassion. It is to have the kind of kind edges that diffuses the aroma of Christ. Everywhere we go, people are smelling different. They're smelling not death, but life. They're smelling the gospel when we show up. So to be kind doesn't mean in any way that we ever compromise what we believe in, but it does mean that we don't have to use a sledgehammer towards everyone who disagrees with us. Why? Because kindness is a verb. It is hands and feet, and it moves towards those who Aren't like us, who may disagree with us, who even criticize us, maybe they even hate us. But let's, just listen to a few verses from the Bible for a moment. Job chapter 6, verse 14 says, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Proverbs 21, verse 21. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Oh, you got to love Micah 6.8. We need to sing it again sometime too, huh? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? That means you love showing it because kindness is a verb and to walk humbly with your God. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. God is kind. We should be kind. And kindness is a verb. It's something we do. Not too heady stuff, is it? But it's the nuts and bolts. It's the shoe leather of our faith. So here's simply the question this morning. What what virtues do you want to define your life by? Will it be kindness, goodness, and gentleness, or will it be frustration, anger, and belligerence? I heard a preacher say just recently that belligerence is a fruit of the Spirit kindness is a fruit of God. And it is not an inconvenience to be avoided, but an action to be embraced. I don't know, sending a thank you note, assisting a neighbor, helping a friend in distress. I mean, we could go on and on and on and give a list. The, the question simply is, with whatever circumstances or people in your life, when the opportunity comes up for you to be kind, be kind. Why? Because God is kind. This is not a moralistic message. This is a gospel-centered message. Because we have experienced it, we express it. Kindness is a deep expression of love and care that is undeserved. It is unearned. It is unrepayable. You just do it because you've experienced it. And speak kind words. Words have a way of changing us. And so in every situation you walk into, you know that you can either use words that build up or demoralize. Words are powerful things. And if anything is going to mark the aroma of Christ among his people today, it's speaking kind words to everyone. Rick Ezel tells the story of his father who traveled a lot for the business that he operated. And in some of his overnight trips, sometimes he would take Rick, his son, or sometimes he would take somebody else with him for company. And sometimes it was an African American named Willie. And one night on an overnight trip, they pulled over to stay at a hotel and he and Walt, Willie, went to the front desk and requested a room for the two of them. And the clerk looked at them and said, I will give you a room, but not one for him, pointing to Willie. And his father said, if, if he can't stay, then I won't stay. And they walked out. And out on the parking lot, Willie said, Mr. Ezell, you, can't, you can stay in that room, and I'll sleep in the van. I'll be all right. And he replied, oh, no, if, if they won't let you stay in that motel, then I won't stay there either. You're like family to me. And they both slept in the van overnight. After that man passed, Willie spoke to Rick at his father's funeral and said, I want you to know that your father's words to me that night changed my life forever. The words we speak make all the difference. Kind words that we share can change a life. So here's where I want to leave you. I want to leave you in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It's the question that David asked, but it should be the question that we ask. Is there not someone to whom I can show kindness to? Is there not someone with whom I can show the kindness? As I close this morning, Pastor Mike is going to come up and lead us in a time around the table, the Lord's table. It's striking to me that that the word table was mentioned five times in Second Samuel chapter 9. And the word table there represents something deeply theological and profound and real because sitting at one's table and eating is the deepest act of fellowship. It's a personal sharing of life. And because we have known and experienced the kindness of God through Jesus Christ, guess what? He invites us to sit at his table and to feast with him and from him, and to enjoy him, it's the deepest personal act of friendship. You, in Christ, have been given a seat at the Father's table. Let's pray about that. And our Holy Father, how grateful we are for having experienced the kindness of Of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Kindness, who went to the cross, who died for our sins, who rose again, who went back to heaven, who's coming back. And until the day that Jesus shows up, we are to reflect and display his life to the world. And so, Father, we pray that having experienced the kindness of Jesus, we will be people who express it and a part of us, Father, being nourished and strengthened and helped and encouraged to be these kinds of people is the sheer enjoyment of sitting at your table, remembering what you did for us at the cross, allowing that to wash over us, to change everything about us, To know, Father, that we're forgiven. And therefore, we've got nothing to prove or to show except the kindness of Jesus to others. So, Father, we with joy hear your invitation to come to the table and eat and drink, and we come with gladness today. In the name of Christ, amen.